Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is November the 10th, 2022, a Thursday. Uh, as always, I'm talking to you from the United States, where uh, after the elections, peace seems to have broken out. Maybe it's short term, but everything seems to have calmed down after the election. Uh, unfortunately, that's not true of uh, the Ukraine. The Russian-Ukraine war continues. Um, good news, I guess, if for most of us who are no great fans of Vladimir Putin and the Russians. Uh, Ukrainian forces continue to advance after the Russians order the retreat from Kherson. Um, but the bad news is that over 100,000 casualties, um, according to one US general, uh, on both sides, both sides have lost over 100,000 men. Um, the propaganda war continues, given all the setbacks. Pro Kremlin commentators are still trying to placate public opinion in Russia. I'm not sure how easy that will be. Um, and the peace talks remain distant, at least according to the New York Times today, uh, in spite of the Russian retreat. It doesn't seem as if either side wants to talk to the other. Um, and Vladimir Putin remains um, uh, a, uh, the villain of the peace, an outlaw in many ways now of the world community. He uh, announced today that he's not um, attending the G20 summit. Of course, many of us think of the Russian invasion of Ukraine as Putin's war, but my guest today, uh, a real expert on contemporary Russia, Mark Galliotti, has a new book out, uh, not just describing the Ukraine war as Putin's war, but other wars too, from Chechen Chechenia onwards. Uh, his new book is called Putin's Wars. And Mark, who is a consultant focusing on Russia, um, based in, uh, in Washington, D.C., is joining us. Uh, Mark, um, you're not the first or the last person, I think, to identify uh, the Russian wars since Vladimir Putin has been in power as Putin's wars. Do all these wars from Chechenia onwards, do they all have the same characteristics? To a degree. I mean, look, they are very different wars. We're talking about uh, civil wars, relatively minor interventions into Syria, however minor, not, not so much for the Syrians themselves, all the way through to this. So very different wars, different levels of public support. But what I think is the thread that links them all together is precisely Putin himself and his notion of what makes a great power. His notion of the fact that a great power is very much seen in, frankly, 19th century terms. It's not about uh, soft power. It's not about economic dynamism or anything like that. No, you know, a, a great power is a great military power and has the capacity to impose its will on its neighbors, on countries which are regarded within its sphere of influence. So I think that is the essence of Putin's notions of why Russia had to be a great power and why that means a military power and why that is to be demonstrated from time to time. Um, Mark, we had uh, Brian Klass on the show recently, 
Uh, he has a new book out on power. And he talked about what a, a scan of Putin's power-addled brain might tell us. If we could look inside his mind, is he a, a rational actor? I mean, there are some people who simply think he's insane. No, I think he's a rational actor. I think it's a, it's a bit of a cop-out just to say, oh, he's insane. That almost is basically a way of saying it, and that's why we, we don't even need to try and predict what he'll do. Look, we know that rational actors can do deeply irrational and indeed often deeply unpleasant things if they have a certain different frame of reference, certain different set of inputs than, than we have. And it's clear that, look, from Putin's point of view, he genuinely believes that Ukraine isn't a real country he thought it was actually on the verge of being a failed state, that the Ukrainians would largely welcome the Russians when they went in in February. He genuinely believed that there was a whole network of people who are already in the Russians' pocket who would be able to administer this for him. And he genuinely believes that he faces a hostile NATO that is trying to undermine him and quite possibly even fragment the Russian Russian. Now, look, I would personally disagree with every single one of those assumptions. But the point is, this is what he believes. And if you believe those things, what he has done in its own horrific way is rational. Uh, Putin's often remembered for his uh, remarks about the collapse of the Soviet Union as being the demise of historical Russia. He described it, I think, as the biggest tragedy of the 20th uh, century. Is he, in some ways, in your mind, a prisoner of history, or is he just a prisoner uh, in his own mind of history? Yeah, I think I think the latter one, and he's he's a prisoner of his own experiences. I mean, let me just start with that particular quote because I must admit it's it's one that really sort of gets my goat every time because it's worth noting that when he said that it was you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union was this great or one of the greatest geopolitical catastrophes of the twentieth century, he was speaking very specifically about the way. It left community of Russians stranded in a whole variety of other brand new countries. And he'd also separately said that uh, no one with a heart cannot miss the old Soviet Union, but no one with a brain would try to reconstitute it. So this is not a man who's just trying to build back the Soviet Union, but he is absolutely a representative of his generation. It's worth noting, after all, he's 70 years old. The people around him, his closest allies, are almost all between a band of around 68 to 74 years old. They are all homo sovietici. They are all products of the Soviet Union, not just education, but their early career experiences. And perhaps just as importantly, they're almost all people who didn't come from long-established Communist Party elite families. These are all people for whom who had just broken into the big time. You know, they were the first in their in their sort of family or whatever to make it. They had a sense of the glittery and glorious career ahead of them, and then suddenly the whole thing collapsed. And you know, as is often the case in these situations, a sense of what have we lost metastasized into and who took it from us. So I think the thing is about, about Putin is he's a victim of so much of his own personal history. Um, you know, he, he was in Germany when the East German regime collapsed, and, and that clearly sort of really horrified him and, and scared yeah, I him. I stood outside and that building that um, <laughs> almost, uh, perhaps in, in retrospect, been better if it had happened, where there was the angry crowd outside after the, mm. the collapse of the wall in, uh, in Leipzig. 
Yeah, absolutely. And from that, he got that sense that basically if a state is weak, then it is vulnerable. Um, so, you know, he, he has all these personal experiences, but also, and I think this is why history is so important. Look, he clearly is interested in history. It's one of the few things he reads. Um, he has some sense of himself as his historic role. He often draws parallels between himself and figures like Peter the Great, you know, the, the old pantheon of, of, of the great Russian national heroes. And I think a lot of what drives him is also this sense. It's not just about anger and resentment about the West. It is also that sense of trying to build a historic legacy for himself. We had Vladislav um, Zubok on the, the show. I, I'm, I'm sure you know him and his work. Uh, his new book, Collapse, The Fall of the Soviet Union, um, is actually a, a finalist for a major history prize. I talked to Zubok about the sort of the inevitable narrative, if you like, between Gorbachev and, and Putin in the way in which Gorbachev failed to reinvent the Soviet Union as Russia didn't really understand politics and power. What's Putin's view of, of, um, of, of Gorbachev? Do you think he shares Zubok's disappointment with his misunderstanding of the nature of power? Yes, I mean... It's worth noting this book is outstanding. Now, I, I think it's clear that Putin is, was also disappointed in, in Gorbachev, but for very, very different reasons. I mean, ultimately, he felt that the key problem with the Gorbachev reforms was precisely the weakness it demonstrated at the center. I mean, one of the, the abiding themes of how Russian history as a whole, not just during the Gorbachev years, but all the way back to its very foundations, have been reformulated under Putin has been this notion that when the central state is weak and when the nation is divided, then Russia becomes vulnerable to all kinds of enemies, both from without and within. And from his point of view, absolutely, Gorbachev allowed the country to divide itself within and also demonstrated weakness without, pulling out of Afghanistan, allowing the, the Warsaw Pact to, to collapse and so forth. So I think from his point of view, Gorbachev is actually almost like a cautionary tale, is exactly the kind of leader he doesn't want to be. And he hasn't been that kind of leader. I mean, there are no secrets that you certainly don't like Putin. You're one of the the handful of British people banned from Russia. I'm certainly no great fan, but he certainly achieved more than, than Gorbachev, hasn't he? I mean, he learned from Gorbachev's mistakes. That doesn't make him right, but I guess he overreacted to Gorbachev. He went the other, the other extreme way. Yes, I mean, I'm not sure about achievement. I mean, in many ways, look, Gorbachev's achievement was on one level, look, Gorbachev was a failure. He failed at what he set out to do. But on the other hand, he failed for all the right reasons, and ultimately, particularly because he wasn't willing to use violence on a sustained level to maintain his state. And therefore, I think that that was in many ways a moral triumph. Putin, yes, he's learned, shall we say, some of the tactical lessons to avoid in terms of allowing opposition movements to build up and, and such like, and allowing your own armed forces to, to, to wither on the vine. But nonetheless, I mean, apart from the fact that clearly on a moral level, Putin has failed catastrophically. But also, I think what's interesting is Putinism is now, as a result of this war, in my opinion, dying. Um, you know, we, we're seeing Russia become almost like a kind of a retread of Brezhnevism. We are seeing all the genuine achievements of the first two terms of Putin's presidency being frittered away 
by a war that was always a deeply stupid adventure. And in that context, actually, you know, obviously, we, we, we can look at Gorbachev and look at his career in the round. When we, in due course, look at Putin's career in the round, then I think ultimately we will, we will most definitely be saying that he was a failure by his own lights as well as by our own. You presented Putin, at least his mind, his thinking in 19th century terms. A lot of people have been on the show presenting Putin as a very much a 21st century figure. Angela Stent, again, I'm sure you're familiar with her work, who sees Putin as paranoid and in, almost in social media terms. Peter Pomerantsev has been on the show too, uh, saying the same thing. Marie Yovanovitch, the former US ambassador to uh, Ukraine, specifically compared Trump with Putin. I think that's a mistake, Mark, to imagine Putin to be somehow like Trump. In a way, it's almost normalizing him. It's almost normalizing him. And also, to be honest, it says nothing more about our obsessions than actually Putin himself. Um, you know, Putin is, is, in my opinion, nothing at all like Trump, except in so far as all essentially authoritarian and narcissistic figures can be, be lumped together, but then it becomes almost meaningless. And I think it's more that one then uses, almost one uses a comparison with Putin as a way of damning other people. The reason why I present Putin as essentially quite 19th century in his thinking, even if it's obviously filtered through all the, the new dilemmas and technologies and so forth of the 21st century, is you know, I, I do feel that was would be entirely familiar to a Napoleon or a Bismarck. You know, because after all, the 19th century was, was not just an era before the, the modern international order. It was one which actually might did make right. But also, it was an era of colonialism. And with it, this assumption that in some ways there were proper countries which had genuine agency and sovereignty. And then there were other countries that were actually of lesser status, whose role was really to be within other countries' colonial spheres of influence. Whether they were actually directly controlled or whether they were just simply exactly influenced indirectly. But that sense that in a way there, there was a two-tier world, this is very much the way Putin seems to think of it. There are countries that are proper countries, and then there are countries whose fate is simply to be fought over and controlled by others, Ukraine being a, sort of a, a classic example. So I think it's, it's very much it's kind of this colonial mindset as well as a mindset that is shaped by a sense that there is no such thing as international order. There is just simply countries striving for their own self-interest. It's interesting you bring up Bismarck, of course, in his own context, was a fairly successful man on political and military terms. The man who comes to my mind when it comes to the 19th century, perhaps comparing Putin, is Metternich and his uh, obsession with shoring up conservative Europe. He wasn't a, as much of a militarist as, as Putin, but he also was in charge of a, a, an empire in decline. What, I mean, the way you're presenting Putin suggests that there is some reason, some rationale. What would be the alternative? What, what else could he do? Throw open the, the borders, become a, a neoliberal, a globalist like everybody else? I mean, that's, I'm guessing, how he might respond to you. Yes, but the interesting thing is, if one looks at, the, as I said, the first two terms of Putin's presidency were astonishingly successful. 
in their own often quite brutal way. Um, having seen Russia fail once to reimpose its control over this rebellious region of Chechnya, Putin presides over a, a second very brutal but nonetheless successful operation to bring it back into the fold. He also is in a position where actually he strikes a, essentially a deal, a, a social contract with the Russian people that says, look, you base stay out of politics. You let me and my mates run the country. And I will guarantee you that your lives will continue to get better. And that's not the first of them. I mean, these deals are being continually presented. I mean, uh, hmm. Xi Jinping in, in, in Beijing is doing it, making exactly this, presenting exactly the same deal. It's the old deal that the communists presented in Eastern Europe, even the, the Bolsheviks presented, or, 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 or the post Stalinist Bolsheviks. So, it's not particularly original, is it? Keep out of politics. No, it's not, it's, because it's, it's not original. original. Exactly. But this is it. it. It is precisely that. It is the classic authoritarians. And if you run the, the system relatively effectively, you, you can do really rather well. This is the point. At that point, Putin was still, we might almost think of as a technocratic authoritarian. Um, you know, he just wanted to stay in power. He wanted to be able to make sure that he dominated whatever he wanted to dominate, that his cronies kept their hands on all the key industries and so forth and the, the the people's quiet and meanwhile he he rides high he's still able to fight little wars here and there he invades georgia and basically gets away with it scot-free so actually that the period of successful hybrid authoritarianism because there was still quite a bit of scope for ordinary russians to express their views there was civil society there were i mean largely fake opposition parties but there were some signs of real politics it's very much when he comes back, you know, there, there is this period in which, for term limit reasons, he technically becomes prime minister, puts his loyal prime minister and crony Dmitry Medvedev in, in his office, but in fact runs everything from behind the scenes. That's the point, I think one of the crucial hinge moments. He could have left power at that point and decided, okay, I've, I've done my thing. And I think history would, would treat quite kindly as someone who actually did something necessary, which was to prevent the Russian state from failing, which was a real possibility in the 1990s. Instead, he came back, he faced increasing public resistance, which he interpreted as signs of, of Western stirred up um, attempt, you know, attempts at regime change, and did at that point become increasingly confrontational, increasingly worried, and in a way, from that point, see the slide towards Crimea in 2014, the increasing tensions with the West and then the invasion in 2022. So, you know, there are points when, where he made choices. There were forks in the road. Just the, the choices he made led us here. What do you make, Mark, of some of the, the Western, I wouldn't say apologists, but certainly uh, critics of hardline American response to the Russian invasion? Uh, Joseph Weisberg, for example, very pro-Russian writer, uh, was on the show recently comparing Bush's invasion with Iraq and Putin's invasion of Ukraine as a so-called neo-realist school of foreign affairs in America, arguing that we need to understand Putin's war in Ukraine and perhaps Putin wars as natural wars of great powers. How, how should we respond to those realists? Well, I mean, first of all, I, I think I, I question a lot of the terminology. I mean, first of all, I would draw myself as very pro-Russian. I just happen to be very anti-Putin 
because I think he is actually a terrible scourge to the Russian people. I mean, that's what's one worth saying. And also this notion of realists. I mean, realism. And to be fair, sorry, and so, I, 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 I need to jump in here. I, to be fair to, to Joe Weisberg, he's certainly not pro-Putin. So I, I don't want to suggest that. But anyway, go on. Sure. No, but I, but I think also this this notion of of, of realists. I mean, again, it's it, in some ways it's actually a marvelous way of marketing a sort of particular kind of perspective because you automatically kind of therefore imply that everyone else is unrealistic. No, I think what what we must see is, is different. I mean, I, I'm not here to in any way defend the the, the, the rather clumsy and um, questionably based invasion of of Iraq, but. I do think we have to actually distinguish between a war that was fought against a dictatorial regime, which had conducted you know, a, a aggressive invasion of another country, with a war against a country that clearly had posed no direct threat to the Russian Federation. I mean, although this this became part of the sort of the, the, the propagandistic talking points, you know, the Ukrainian military was not in a position to to what invade Russia. What about the NATO Russia. issue, though, Mark? They bring up the NATO, NATO issue. Country? Yeah, I mean, they they do. But look, realistically speaking, even the Russians acknowledge that that Ukraine was not going to become a NATO member for years and years to come. The best case, even if it was ever going to happen. And interestingly, even at the start of the war. It was not actually NATO membership that Putin was talking about. He was talking about the potential presence of NATO security architecture on Ukrainian soil. You know, missiles based outside Kherson, or sorry, or Kharkiv could hit Moscow in five to seven minutes and so forth. So look, there were concerns. And I absolutely do believe that from Putin's point of view, this was a defensive war. I don't accept that premise. But nonetheless, I think from his view, he felt that Ukraine was being captured by minions of CIA and indeed MI6, and generally being sort of dragged out of one sphere of influence into another. Remember, if you have this mindset of influence, if you don't actually believe that a country like Ukraine has its own agency, then if it's a loss for you, it has to be a gain for someone else. So yes, he thought of it as a defensive war, but I would not actually accept that premise. And I don't really think we can, we can draw meaningful parallels with Iraq or similar conflicts. I mentioned earlier that, at least according to the time, New York Times, uh, peace talks remain distant. If indeed your argument's right, and he's a rather warped 19th century real politic uh, figure, um, Bismarck, Metternich, and so on, the assumption should be that he, he, at some point he's willing to come to the table to negotiate. Isn't that fair, Mark? Or is, do you think, are we wasting our time imagining that Putin would be willing to accept a compromise in Ukraine, which he's clearly at some point going to have to do unless he starts lobbing nuclear missiles around? Yeah, uh, this is it. All wars ultimately end in, in some form of, of negotiation. I think that the problems are that at the moment he's in a position in which what he feels he needs from any negotiations are so far apart from what Ukraine would be willing to accept that there is just simply no real point in negotiation. But the interesting thing is that certainly the Russians are constantly saying, we're happy to talk. Now, to a degree, this is simply propaganda. They are setting themselves up so that when the Ukrainians say, we will only be willing to talk about you leaving our country, they're saying, well, Look, you know, we're willing to talk, but the Ukrainians are setting preconditions. So there, there is a degree of cynicism there. 
but only a degree. I think the, the, the problem is, is, is precisely this, that, that Putin, having launched this war and given the extraordinary costs of this war in terms of you know, dead Russians, but also in terms of the scarring to the economy, he needs something that he can spin, I think, as a victory. And the Ukrainians at present, given that they feel that they are winning, have absolutely no incentive to, to give him that victory. And I think we're, we're unfortunately in a position in which this, this conflict will therefore continue until one side or the other manages sufficiently to harm the other, that the other is willing to, to compromise on what they regard as, as the sort of fundamental requirements. But this is it. Alas, at the moment, I think we're nowhere near there because Putin is putting his faith in being able to dig in and extend this war, which will mean either the Ukrainians, in his mind, will either give in, or perhaps even more likely that the West, whose financial as well as military support is absolutely crucial to the Ukrainian war effort, will lose interest, lose the will to continue to send every month billions of euros, pounds and dollars towards Kyiv. His view is that if, if this one area that Moscow still has the superiority, it's national will, and that he can outlast us. Presumably, he, he has some concern with pressures from allies and Chinese or the, the Indians, as well as internal political issues. We'll come to that in a minute, Mark. What about his threat, his nuclear threat? Should we take those seriously? I, I actually am perhaps dangerously and unfashionable unfashionably optimistic on this point. Yes, it could potentially materialize at some point, but at present, I think we are nowhere near there for several reasons. One is, look, Putin is largely using this, this rhetoric in order to try and create divisions and uncertainty in the West, because what happens is every time we have one of this bit of heavy-handed signaling, there are those in the West who say, oh my gosh, the danger of an uncontrolled escalation into thermonuclear Armageddon is, is such that we need to put pressure on the Ukrainians to basically find some way of ending this, and if that means concessions to Russia, so be it. So obviously he's hoping that he can mobilize and activate this particular constituency in the West. But secondly, look, in terms of, of the the nuclear option, I mean, we, we tend to call them tactical nuclear weapons, apparently we should be calling them non-strategic nuclear weapons, I'm not quite sure of the difference. Um, they are not very militarily worthwhile in this, in this particular context. They would be purely there to, to terrorize and, and essentially try and scare people into making concessions. And the thing is that that would be incredibly unpredictable. Firstly, there'll be many within Russia who'll be very, very alarmed about it. Secondly, it might well push the West actually into thinking it's not just that Putin must fail, but that Putin must fall and regime change comes onto the table. And also, you mentioned the Chinese and the Indians. They have made it very, very clear that they are very alarmed by the thought of the nuclear taboo being broken. And therefore, if Putin did take that option, it could well dramatically change his relationship with his last two, maybe calling them allies, is a little bit too strong. But anyway, the last two countries that are still willing to talk and negotiate and deal with him. Mark, you got banned, as I said earlier, in June this year, one of the 29 people Sadly, from the UK, uh, which I'm very uh, envious of. It's quite an achievement. You must have done something good. Um, yeah, but you're still, even if you haven't been to Russia the last six months, you're still very well connected there. You know, lots of people inside and outside the military. 
um, and you write about it in the book. What's your sense of any potential opposition to Putin, to a palace coup, to a, a Khrushchevian mm. moment uh, where the people around him and the oligarchs have said enough is enough, this is insane, let's just do a deal and get rid of this guy? I think that we're, again, nowhere near that yet. I mean, what you've got to realize is essentially there are no real Putinists in this system. Everyone is a cynical, pragmatic opportunist who supported the system because it was very much in their interests and you, you could do very, very well for yourself. What this means is that they're constantly making, in effect, cost-benefit analyses. At present, the risks in turning against Putin massively outweigh risks in just keeping your head down and hoping things work out. But that's not necessarily going to last forever because it's, it's clear that there is a considerable degree of disaffection within the elite as a whole, as well as within the country. Now, within the country, it's largely on, on economic grounds, that everything is getting more expensive, that you know, things are sort of okay. And well, fine, so you can't go... who have lost their yachts and who can't travel around the mm -hmm. world and who are being vilified everywhere and everything. I mean, surely they're not happy. Yeah, they're not happy, but they don't matter. When it comes down to it, precisely actually because of Western sanctions locking them out, they are now stuck in Russia, where they are stuck at Putin's discretion, shall we say. They are rich so long as Putin lets them be rich. So in effect, they've just simply become money managers for the state. They're not the people that Putin has to worry about. The people Putin has to worry about are the people who run the system. So, you know, the regional governors and the mayors, but perhaps most importantly, the military and the security apparatus. These are the people who have real agency at the moment. And I could see a situation further down the line if things continue to go badly, if Putin clearly has nothing to offer. It's a little bit like a parallel one in 1917, where, you know, again, the Russians, they've been locked into World War I, failure after disastrous failure. The Tsar makes himself commander-in-chief, not least because he thinks that then the, the luster of a victory will, will come to him. And yet, instead, he becomes associated with defeat after defeat. And he clearly has nothing new to offer except sort of another push in the hope that that changes things. So eventually what happens is in, in February, by the, the old Russian calendar, March by hours, his train has stopped. He's confronted by a delegation of politicians and generals who basically say, look, it's time for your last duty to the motherland. You have to step down. Well one could see potentially somewhere down the line, if things continue to go disastrously badly, and particularly if it begins to look as if the risk of you know, domestic protests spiraling becomes too dangerous and people are worried, worried that they will be swept away by some kind of revolutionary tide, that one could have a similar situation. But it will take a lot to do that because the one thing that this system still is very good at is domestic security umpteen different agencies watching each other, um, a clearly a, a strong mood of paranoia where no one knows if their phones are being listened to and such like. So it would take quite a bit to actually bring people to conspire because who wants to be the first person to start those conversations? Well, what about the parents, though, of the 100,000 casualties? Uh, I mean, maybe in, in historical terms, the equivalent isn't so much the First World War, it's the Russian war with Japan in 1904, or the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, both catastrophic wars, which ultimately resulted in very significant political change. Sure. And I think the, the Russo-Japanese war is a particularly good one. 
not least because of the prevailing opinion at the start of the war within the Russian elite that this was going to be, in the words of the interior minister, a nice, victorious little war. They hadn't possibly mm. thought that the Japanese, who are not even Europeans for heaven's sake, could actually put up much of a fight, and instead they discovered that the Japanese had been arming and modernizing a dam site more effectively. And yes, that was disastrous, and then led to the sort of period of... And it was indeed, in, rising. In, in, uh, in keeping with your thesis, it was the classic imperial war. It was yeah, the classic absolutely. 19th century war. It was probably the last yeah. global 19th century war before, before the First World War, which was, of course, anything but mm. a 19th century war. Sure, sure. Yes, definitely. No, so in, in that sense, I mean, th th there is an interesting parallel to be made. But the thing is that one of the reasons why the 1904-5 Russo-Japanese War led to the 1905 revolutions was precisely the weaknesses of the state's apparatus. Um, by, by that point, you know, it basically right. had very little ways of controlling the masses. At present, at least on paper, Putin has you know, a huge array of security forces able to control these people. The interesting thing is, and again, here there are some parallels, is his kind of frontline force is a so-called National Guard, which is not like the American National Guard. It's actually a sort of a, a permanent domestic security army, really. He sent them to join the fighting in Ukraine, and they have been really badly savaged in that war because they're not really geared to be war fighters. They're glorified riot policemen. And, you know, I, I certainly follow quite a few of the social media channels that, that they use to talk amongst themselves. And by heavens, they are angry. So, again, this is one of the interesting things of actually how far are the people on whom Putin ultimately depends to control the country for him? You know, actually, when push comes to shove, what would they do? And this is the thing we don't know. Putin doesn't know either. We had Ian Kershaw on the show yesterday, very distinguished British historian, expert on Hitler and Stalin and Lenin. He has a new book out in which he selects 12 most influential figures from the 20th century in terms of shaping Europe. And he includes Lenin. We talked a little bit about Lenin with Ian. I think Lenin is obviously a critical figure here, a successful Putin, I guess, a man who understood power, uh, a man who plotted the overthrow of the Russian state from Zurich. Is there a Lenin somewhere in the world, uh, uh, Mark? Someone plotting a post-Putin world? I mean, there are, there are in some ways, there are many people plotting, but one of the things that really made Lenin effective is actually he has an astonishingly clear-eyed notion of power and yeah. the ruthlessness to act as a result of that. And that's why he sort of basically built Bolshevik Party as his weapon to do that. Um, if looks at the opposition outside the country, on the whole, it has to be said, it is pretty deeply divided and more interested in sort of calling each other out, which is in some ways much like many of the Russian revolutionaries of the late 19th and right. 20th centuries, than actually doing anything. And, you know, if one looks at, you know, someone like Alexei Navalny, who was a sort of crucial opposition figure, you know, he's now languishing in a Russian prison and is unlikely to be let out until Putin is either no longer in power or really thinks he doesn't have to fear him. So I don't think there's, there's a Lenin. If I was going to draw a parallel, it would actually be with Poland and Lech Wałęsa, the sort of mm. rather apparently undistinguished electrician from Gdansk shipyards who became the mobilizing figure of the Solidarity Trade Union movement 
and you know absolutely crucial in really sort of bringing out the kind of pressures which ultimately led to the downfall of the Polish communist regime. And I think this is the thing, it's actually more that we will likely see figures crystallizing, emerging from the movement as and when, and this is, it is likely to happen, economic pressures begin to generate sort of serious uh, you know, political pressures in Russia. We will organically, I think, see homegrown leaders emerge. And that is in some ways is the, the scariest thing for the authorities because you know the the, the outside areas they can control they have been watching they have big files and dossiers and they can keep them out of the country there's going to be not going to be any sealed trains coming into russia without the authorities knowing it but someone who just emerges out of nowhere and who just suddenly has the the knack the skills the charisma or whatever to be able to cohere mm -hmm. a, a mass these people are much scarier for the, secu the, the security police. Yeah, it's very chilling that one could imagine a time when we're actually nostalgic for Putin, for his reason, for his rationality, even if it's sometimes slightly suspect. Um, I think the one thing we can say, Mark, for sure, on uh, in, in terms of your book, Putin's War from Chechnya to Ukraine, is that the Ukraine will be the last war, last of Putin's wars. I mean, he can't have another war after this unless, I guess, he does go insane and starts some sort of nuclear uh, conflagration with, with Western Europe or the United States. Yes, and I mean, and that, that won't be a war. It, it, it could be a global suicide. No, I mean, I agree absolutely. And it's really striking how, especially thanks to his own dramatic misreading of the situation, military reform which had spent 20 years dumping huge amounts of money into it to build up actually what did look, what was beginning to look like a fairly serious armed uh, force. But basically he squandered that. He burnt through that in maybe the first 20 weeks of the war. And now we have these 300,000 mobilized reservists, scarcely trained, recalcitrant, badly equipped. Some of them have been thrown into the front line where they're taking horrific losses. Others are being constituted into units ready for the spring. But if you look at these, these units, I mean, essentially, these are going to be with second or third hand kit dating back to the Soviet time. So the very point when Ukraine acquiring a 21st century military, the Russians are increasingly deploying a 20th century one. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think the idea that, that Putin could pose any kind of serious military threat to any but the smallest of his neighbors, and certainly to, to the West and to NATO, is now, I think, implausible. I don't think it's going to take a few years. I think it'll take Russia 20 years to rebuild its military capacities if, as and when, this war ends. And just as it's the 21st century war being fought in 19th century terms by a 19th century mind, in Ukraine, Zelensky and the war is very much 21st century, a master of social mm. media, a master of, I guess, propaganda or public opinion. How can we bridge the gap, we in the West, between Zelensky's 21st century approach and Putin's 19th century? Can we school Zelensky? Can we help bring him to the table? Well, I mean, in a way, for, for the moment, I mean, obviously, we are committed to, to, to supporting Zelensky and the mantra. Well, we can still support him and bring him to the table. I mean, those aren't necessarily well, yeah. 
I know, but the, but the mantra we, we, we currently use is that the war ends when the Ukrainians decide it will end. Now, okay, that is clearly disingenuous. And in part, it's precisely because the West is actually so divided as to what really we want to see coming out of this war in the end game, ranging from some countries like Poland and the Baltic states, which actually have a much more maximalist approach, to others who just want the, the shooting to stop. Understandably, you know, the difference between mm -hmm. the Poles and the Italians or the Spanish, I mean, they're of course thousands of miles and 500 and also deep history. historic experience exactly no but i, I, but I think in, in in the circumstances you know it was interesting that, that we saw recently at least in the u.s media clearly strategic leaks from the u.s government saying that they wished that the ukrainians would at least present themselves as being more open for dialogue with the russians but i think this is very much about optics um, it's just simply about not allowing the Russians to present the Ukrainians as intransigent. At present, you know, I, I don't really think that the West is willing to try and exert much traction on, on Zelensky about talks, because as I said, there's no real grounds to talks. The real issue, which I think is going to face us, is Crimea. Um, particularly if the withdra Russian withdrawal from Kherson turns into a rout, there is the potential that the Ukrainians might think, huh, actually the way into Crimea is now open. Maybe we, we should make a, some kind of a assault there. And that is the kind of thing that could push Putin into escalating in dangerous ways. And I know it's something that a lot of Western governments are concerned about. But at present, it doesn't look actually as if we really have much capacity to influence President Zelensky. So I think that's something that, that is going to become increasingly an issue as we start to move closer to the end game. But for, for now, you know, frankly, all, all we do is just simply provide the money, provide the guns, and let the Ukrainians do the fighting and, alas, the dying. Why sad words from Mark Galliotti, the author of Putin's War, from Chechnya to Ukraine, very wise book, very realist in a, in a truly realist way, rather than the way, as Mark suggested, the Sometimes the apologists for Putin have stolen that language. Congratulations, Mark, on that new book. Everyone should read it. Thank you, you very much. The situation. You're a man in D.C., but very well connected in Russia, very good on the politics and the military side. What else are you reading these days, Mark, to keep yourself informed or entertained? Yes, well, I must admit, often, actually, what I need is escapism rather than anything I can else. Imagine, but, uh, given what you said. Yeah, but most recently, though, actually, I, I've just been rereading uh, Vladimir Sarokin's book, Day of the Aprichnik, which kind of is a, I hesitate to call it science fiction, because it's not, it's, it's, it's more a kind of, shall I say, a future fantasy of a Russia under a reconstituted czar with the sort of thuggish, kleptocratic secret police in, in charge. And yet the, the chilling thing is that increasingly what, what looked like a, an over-the-top parody now begins to read a little bit more like, 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 like a serious prediction. You know, a Russia that has walled itself off from the West literally in order to kind of keep, keep all its degeneracy at bay. And that, that, alas, is, 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 is what I was reading. Yeah, the, unfortunately, that science fiction seems to be all too chillingly predictive of our future indeed quite though on the 